Hi, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Blaming on the Aliens. I'm your host, Callie, and this week I have creepy encounters and let's not meet stories that honestly serve a little bit of a bigger purpose, I think, than ever before. It's been a long time since I read a story and was like, this could happen to anybody. Like, creepy things happen, and there are some crazy, of course, stories that I've read, but I felt a little bit more like this could have been me. And when I was reading one specifically, which is the very first story, I thought immediately, this reminds me of what I heard on a crime junkie and something was wrong podcast episode called Operation Fireball. And if you've never heard of Operation Fireball, basically the premise is there's a larger scale trafficking potential operation that consists of a guy meeting you on a dating profile. You agree to hang out. And when you get there, they say, oh, I'm going to be late. They never show up. You're sitting at the bar like, oh, shit, I just got stood up. And meanwhile, this guy who's been at the bar says, hey, what's up? I'll just buy you a shot. You look lonely. And is very friendly, whatever. So he buys you a shot. He makes conversation and then keeps buying you shots. And when you're getting kind of like, okay, that's enough. He insists that y'all go to another bar together or that you can come to his house and get drinks, etc. But basically, Crime Junkie and Something Was Wrong did an episode about this and found out that so many girls experienced the same situation where the exact same thing happened. They were, quote unquote, stood up by this really sketchy Tinder or whatever dating profile they were on person. And then they tried to call the person. They were blocked. They were blocked off Tinder after this experience. Anyway, long story short, if you haven't listened to those episodes, I highly suggest you do. It, it really does give me full body chills. And that's the first thing I thought of when I read the first story. So before reading any of the comments of this OP's post, I messaged them back and was like, have you ever heard of this? And they had thankful to the comments. And so I just think it just goes to show that like you could be randomly sharing your story on Reddit and people who have heard something similar are going to make the connection. So one person who could have heard a random episode of something said, hey, the same thing happened to this other girl. There could be something bigger going on. Let's like report this. I don't know. It just gave me kind of full body chills. And I don't know if this is actually connected to Operation Fireball, of course. Like this, like OP said to me back, this is honestly just a common way probably for predators to meet women. So anyway, I just wanted to put that out there. And if your gut's telling you something, please, please listen to it. It's awkward. We don't want to be like, get away from me, you creeper who's just offering to buy me a shot. Of course, we all want free shots. You know what I'm saying? But you, you got to be a little, I guess, ruder than normal when your gut's screaming at you. So anyway, listen with purpose and think about these stories being you or your friend and be safe out there. Um, I don't usually tangent like this at the beginning, but I felt it was very necessary. And with that being said, and without further ado, let's get into it. I just came across this subreddit and I immediately knew what I needed to get out because trust me, I have one crazy story. 
When I turned 17 last year, me and two other friends had a little get-together and kind of planned to go out that night. One of my friends was active on Tinder and had been chatting with an 18-year-old named Jens. This guy asked if we'd come and meet him at this bar in Utrecht, in the Netherlands. And we're thinking, oh my God, free alcohol with a hot guy? Seems fun. We get ready, take a train, and within 15 minutes, we're in Utrecht. We stopped at some stores and a restaurant before we got to the bar. We go in and sit on those high chairs. We didn't see the guy from the Tinder profile, so we waited. Then my friend got the message that he was delayed, so we waited. We ordered some Cokes. My friend tried to message the guy again, but the messages went unanswered. After a while, this man, who had also been sitting at the bar the whole time, asked us if he could offer us a drink. This man was maybe 30 years old, but there were three of us, and after all, we came to get a free drink, so we said yes, and he ordered us the shots. We continued our conversation, and when we finished the shots, he'd get us new ones. Then at some point, he came to sit with us and engage with our conversation. Then later, all of us moved to the lounge in the corner in the bar, and we were all kind of tipsy and enjoying ourselves. That kind of went on. Like, for example, we talked about our favorite artists, but then he started asking sexually tended questions, and because this man was not hot at all, rather ugly and way too old, we did not like that. I felt a little too tipsy and needed some water, so I got up to ask for water at the bar, When I did, the waitress at the bar told me that we could absolutely not go home with this man we were sitting with. Because she said that at their bar it happened that a young girl would come and sit at the bar, get stood up, and then this supposedly nice man, who always happened to be there when a girl got stood up, would buy them a drink, get them drunk, and ask them to go home with them. And that's the guy we were sitting with. I didn't make a connection right away, but I understood that this man was not as nice as he seemed. When I got back to our table, I said to my friends I wanted to go home, and they agreed. We were trying to say goodbye, but the guy kept pressuring us to have another drink or go to another bar. He said he had Bacardi for us at his home and asked if we wanted to get in. He kept pressuring and literally walked with us out of the bar. I freaked out and thought this man was going to follow us home. But eventually he did walk into another bar and we went ahead and took our train back home. The next day, I realized what had happened. I told my friends what the waitress said and when my friend tried to contact the Tinder profile, she found out that he blocked her. I am 100% sure that the 30-year-old man who coincidentally was there to get friendly with us when we got, quote, stood up, was actually the 19-year-old that we were supposed to meet up with. I think about what could have happened if we were to have gone with him to his home. And I'm so happy there were three of us. Like, I don't know what could have happened if I were alone. For every young girl in in the Netherlands out there, if you stumble across a Tinder account under the name Jens, don't be too quick to meet them. I believe he lives in Utrecht City as he asked us to walk with him for the Bacardi. If you happen to be stood up, and a white, about 30-year-old man with short, dark, blonde hair and uneven eyebrows offers you drinks, do not accept and leave. I once met up with an old friend of mine, Mel, 22, a friend that I'd known for a few years prior to the meetup in November 2017. I'd actually met this person on a dating site. However, as time went on, the relationship between us became strictly platonic. There were no red flags. My gut did not warn me. So I completely trusted this person. We met up in town behind a bus station on a grassy hill surrounded by trees and a tall wall. Our meeting was just to have a smoke, get a little high, and to have a small catch-up. The meetup was fine. I'd actually started smoking weed a few months before, so I was still relatively new to it. 
He had brought something new for me to try, purple haze. I wasn't at all anxious about trying it, as I completely trusted this person and would never believe that he would lie to me. He had packed a full blunt for me, but I only managed to smoke a quarter of the blunt. We spoke during this time about work, our previous relationships, and random stuff. About half an hour later, I started to feel extremely lightheaded and anxious. I suddenly had this strange feeling where I did not feel comfortable at all, and I really wanted to go home. When I asked him if I could go home, he offered to take me home, but I said, no, it's okay. He offered again, please let me take you home. You'll be safe with me. I wouldn't hurt you. I shook my head and said, no, thank you. I'm just going to take myself home. And when I started to walk away, I felt like I was walking on a cloud. My head became dizzy and my eyesight was a little blurry. I had never felt like this before and in time, I started to panic. When we made our way down the hill toward the bus station, I was relieved as there were a lot of people around, so if anything happened, someone would step in. I became extremely terrified of him, and I had this horrible feeling in my gut that told me to get away from him, and when I got to the bus station, I told them that I would just call my taxi here and go home. His tone was no longer nice, but very stern. I'm going to take you home now and he began to pull at my jacket. I told him no, and that I was going home on my own. He pulled my jacket harder, and I fell against him. He pulled me into him and told me I needed to be scared of him. But I was so, so terrified. At this point, I started to feel very paranoid, and I couldn't see properly. I pushed him away from me and rubbed my eyes and called for a taxi. He tried to pull my phone from me and yelled in my face, Do you ever listen? I'm taking you home. I noticed a few people had stopped and asked if I was okay. All I remember was that I wanted to go home, so a lady kindly called a taxi for me and waited with me, made sure I was okay, and even helped me into the taxi. During the time when I waited for the taxi, he kept trying to get me to come to his car with him, but the lady that looked after me told him to go home and that she was going to take me home instead. So he left. When I got home, I gave the taxi driver money and told him to keep the change. I didn't want to wait around. I just wanted to get into my bed because at the time, it was the only place I would feel and be safe from harm. That evening, I laid in my bed for five hours straight, staring at the ceiling. I don't remember if I thought about anything or if my mom came in at any time. I just remember lying in bed doing nothing until the paranoia and the sickly feeling began to wear off. I remember looking at my phone and seeing I had 32 missed calls from him, 10 voicemails left, and 50-plus messages. The messages were weird. He had sent around 20 messages just asking where I was and when I got home. And in one of the voicemails, he had told me that he had this fantasy of taking me home while drugged up and tying me up. He wanted to blindfold me and he wanted me to submit myself to him. I freaked out and blocked him on all social media, Instagram, Snapchat, Discord, and I blocked his number. Before the blocking, I told him that if he ever contacted me again, then I would call the police. I heard nothing from him for a month until I received a text from an unknown number asking me how I was. I hadn't given my number to anyone, so I ignored it. I then received another message a few minutes later saying they missed me and that they would see me soon. I asked who they were. No reply. Nothing. So, creepy person who pretended to be my friend, let's never meet again. My boyfriend, who I live with, works as a teacher in a town about 15 minutes away by train. 
he gets home more or less at the same time every day, give or take an hour or so. I, on the other hand, work from home. In late January of this year, we'd gotten into a pretty big fight about something stupid. I can't even remember what it was about now. But it was one of those fights where we didn't speak to each other, text, call, or anything the whole next day. So this afternoon, I was lying in bed getting work done. It was a Tuesday, and I was pretty sure his class finished at 1 p.m. on Tuesdays, meaning he'd surely be home at 2.30. But around 1 p.m., I heard the front door open and shut. I thought, I guess he's home an hour early today. It was normal for him to skip his last class every once in a while, so I didn't really think anything of it. In fact, I was mostly mentally preparing for the awkward post-fight, hey, how's it going, conversation. So I continued to lie in bed and do my work and wait for him to come in and change his clothes. The bedroom door was closed and I had earplugs sort of half in, as I usually do when I'm working. But I could hear the heavy footsteps of him walking around the apartment, as he always does. If we hadn't been mid-fight and I wasn't so preoccupied with the awkwardness of it all, I might have noticed it was strange how slow the footsteps were, or how long he spent walking around the living room. But I was caught up in the dramatics of the fight and didn't think about it. I was just lying there, waiting, waiting, waiting for him to finally come in. Finally, the bedroom door slowly opened just a few inches. I turned my head towards the door, prepared to give him sort of an awkward, we've been fighting for 24 hours, huh, smile. But the door didn't open more than a few inches. I looked and saw that it was a woman's hand with red nail polish on the doorknob. Whoever was there slowly closed the door just as they had opened it without entering the room. I jumped out of bed, ripped out my earplugs, and sort of froze there for a few seconds while thinking rapidly. My first thought, that was not my boyfriend. And then I thought, could that have been his mom, his sister, the landlady? For some reason, I concluded that surely it was his mom or sister. So I opened the bedroom door and walked into the living room. There wasn't anyone there, but the room smelled heavily of woman's perfume. Then I came to my senses and realized that his mom and sister don't even have keys and have never come over before. The landlady has never entered without permission. This was a stranger. I ran back into the bedroom and shut the door, now shaking heavily. There's a balcony connected to the bedroom, so despite the cold January rain, I stood on the balcony and called my boyfriend. He picked up and I asked him if his mom or sister might come over unannounced. He told me, no, don't move, I'm calling the police. And the police were there in minutes and searched the whole apartment. Of course, nobody was there at this point. It was weird though. Nothing was missing from the apartment despite us keeping a jar full of money right by the entrance. Nothing was even touched. In fact, it seemed like the intruder came straight to the bedroom, saw my legs on the bed, panicked, and left. Plus, you can't open that big wooden front door without a key. For a few days, my boyfriend and I were convinced it was just the landlady being nosy. I began to feel better. Nevertheless, we demanded that the landlady change our locks. When she came to change them with her husband, she made a discovery. There was a square area by the keyhole that had been scratched away by something. The landlady said surely someone used tools to break into the apartment. Then a day or two later, my boyfriend told me, I have to tell you something. Don't freak out. He told me that the orange kitchen scissors were missing. I obviously freaked out. I tore the apartment apart looking for those scissors. It's been six months and those scissors are gone. So the whole thing is just creepy and weird. A stranger breaks into a nice apartment, but nothing is touched or taken, anything valuable. Not even the money jar just sitting right in the entrance. 
takes scissors from the kitchen, goes straight to the bedroom, sees someone in bed, and immediately leaves. I never got to meet the person who opened the door that day, and I hope I never do. I, 24 female, at the time was 21 female, lived in a larger small city in the Midwest. At the time, I had no car, a bicycle, and hardly enough money for public buses. I worked at a retail battery lighting and repair store. And I worked full time and only lived a little over a mile from my job. And since I was in a male-dominated field as a female, I was often used to targeted abuse from men that thought that they knew better. Many times I stood my ground and flaunted my knowledge in subjects that these men couldn't grasp. Because of my willingness to learn and my close proximity to work, I often worked all sorts of hours, mostly by myself. This time, I wasn't the person closing and had a coworker, Joey, 22 male, who came in for a part-time shift after he wrapped up classes at a local college. We had a close friendship and we often stood up for each other and stood in when we were flustered or needed to go to the bathroom in the back. Joey received a phone call for a possible repair on a smartphone, possibly LG, low-tier phone though, and he wasn't 100% sure if it was a phone that we could repair. He asked the young female caller to stop by for a consult. She had quickly agreed and said that she would stop by at around 5.30 p.m., and this was the night that I was supposed to get done at 6 p.m. and catch the bus at 6.12. It was a windy, drizzly, early fall night. And I remember this because I had my bike with me and it became my anchor that night. A little before 6 p.m., this frantic, terrified, bawling 19, 20-something-year-old woman came into the tiny shop. I was at the counter switching out aging price tags and general store maintenance. I looked up at her, confused and willing to help, and she looked me deep in the eyes, asking if Joey was here. At the time, he was pooping in our tiny bathroom in the back, so I had to step in and help out any customers. I told her that he was currently busy and that I would be willing to help her. She handed me her smashed, cheap phone very timidly. My customer service skills couldn't prepare me for what she was going to say next. She quietly told me that her boyfriend, who was out in his red mini truck in the small front parking lot, had gotten angry and smashed her phone when she tried to call her sister that afternoon. I took the backing off the phone and tried to research the model for any possible screen repair. No result found. I tried to hand her back the destroyed phone and she pushed it back in my hands with a pleading look. Then the honking commenced. There was a slight drizzle outside, so our front glass door was covered in beaded drops and was slightly fogged over. I couldn't see who was honking out there. I told her again that I couldn't help and for her to try out her cell phone repair competitor down the road. The tears started to really flow down her cheeks and I was freaked out at this point. She kept throwing glances behind her and the honking would not stop. I shook with fear and rage at this point. I myself was in a domestic abuse situation at the time and knew what this girl was experiencing. I broke my locked stare at her and tried to look in our system a second time for a replacement screen. Nothing again. I looked up from our computer and saw a shadowy figure of a young man pacing in front of the store. I was just happy that the honking stopped, but I was increasingly shaken up. My whole body vibrated with fear, and I whispered across the counter if she needed me to call 911. She slammed her hands down on the counter and said that I could not do that. She begged me not to. At this point, Joey came out from the back and asked me what all the honking was from. We had a lot of elderly farmers, lazy and disabled customers that would honk their horns for us to pick up heavy battery cores from their cars. 
He thought that was one of those situations, but with the looks on our faces, he knew something horrifying was happening. The young guy stopped pacing outside and began banging on our front door. Joey took the girl's phone from my hands and said for me to go in the back and lock the back employee-only doors. I did what I was told and grabbed my bag, my bike, and my jacket. I looked at the clock in the back and it read 6.14. I spent 15 minutes with this girl, both of us feeling like trapped animals. Joey did bodybuilding during this free time and was a gentle, non-confronting, short but stocky Asian guy. I was a short, obese, kind lady that would respond either of two ways, like a doormat or ready to stand my ground. I knew that I couldn't fight a customer, and neither could Joey. Not because of physical reasons, we'd lose our jobs and had no idea what to do. The guy threw open the door, and the wind kept the door open. He had this manic, hateful look about him, a total predator. He was slim but muscular, early to mid-twenties, and was soaked by the rain. He took the broken phone off the counter and took the girl in tow. He hurled insults at us, and I gave the girl a pitied look. He slammed the door back shut, and both Joey and I stood in absolute silence. He snapped out of it and ran to the front door and locked it. I told Joey to call our manager from our store landline and stood around while he did. I noticed the guy had moved his truck to directly in front of our door. He was watching us from his truck, watching us behind the counter as we were on the phone with our manager. I had to leave to get home. The last possible bus came at 6.42 and I couldn't pedal my way home in the weather. In all of the circumstances that had just occurred. The time was around 6.18 and I just needed to cross the busy highway and down the sidewalk by an eighth of a mile to the nearest bus stop. Joey, the guy, and I played the waiting game. It was 6.23 when the dickhead finally left out of our parking lot. I told Joey that I would leave at 6.25 so that I could arrive at the bus stop safely. Joey opened the front door and I threw myself on top of my bike and pedaled harder than I could ever imagine. Now, mind you, our store was in an industrial shopping area at the very edge of town. We worked next to a sub shop and worked across the strip mall with the Bullseye store and a local chain grocery store with other retail stores and a bank all in that large lot. It started to downpour. And as I tried to pull out of our parking lot straddling my bicycle, I caught a glimpse of the red truck looping around the sub shop. The highway had dual lanes each way, and I had to play real-life Frogger. If I wanted to make it my destination in one piece, there was a few cars that slowed for me as I hauled ass to the other side of the road. I jumped off my bike and threw it on top of the curb, and I promptly hopped back on and tried to pedal off My front wheel was stuck in the grassy strip and my right foot had slipped off the pedal. My shin struck the pedal and I had to act quickly. I grabbed the frame of my bike and jogged awkwardly to the bus stop. The red truck pulled into the bank parking lot of which I had just passed. The truck pulled around and went out through the entrance across from the sub shop and took the closest lane to me. He wanted to crawl and turned at the red light so he could circle the main parking lot of the shopping center. There was three ways to get into that parking lot. One to the left, one in the center slightly off to the right across from the sub shop, and the other far to the right next to the grocery store. I stuck to the sidewalk since it felt safer and was in front of people. The truck patrolled the parking lot, the hunter stalking its prey. I felt cold, sore, and cornered, just like an injured animal. There was a couple of cars that pulled into the left entrance of the parking lot, causing the truck to stop from re-entering the lot again. I almost collapsed in the shitty small bus stop, and I felt my phone buzz. I saw that it read Joey, so I rested my bike on my person to answer the call. Joey told me that He was watching, and even though he had an elderly couple in the store that he was helping, that he wouldn't allow the guy to hurt me. 
I started to cry. All of this had just gone to me. The red truck looped around once again and again. I saw the bus pull up early at 6.39, and I couldn't be happier. I knew the driver since I used the buses to get around town, errand shopping, and to get to and from work. I had my stupid fucking bike to worry about. I hung up the phone with Joey, putting my phone in my jacket pocket and strapped down my bike in the rock that was in front of the bus. I struggled since I shook and my bike was slick from the rain. I got on the bus and turned to the open bus doors and saw that the truck took a left at the center entrance of the lot. I could finally let my guard down. I sat at the front of the bus and my hands shook. I tried to get the 125 for the fare and the driver said that it was okay and I could just take my time with the change. I kept my backpack on and pulled my damp phone from my pocket, dialing Joey's number, letting him know that I was fine. In under 15 minutes, I made it to my apartment safe, but deeply disturbed. I took my bike in so it wouldn't draw any attention to where I lived. All of this gave me an idea to leave my own domestic abuse situation a few months later when COVID took the world by storm. To this day, I wonder about that girl and hope that somebody more daring and stronger than me called the cops on her abuser, that she had the strength to leave that violent man, for her to write her own story and to recover from all of it. I'm currently doing significantly better in life and finally have my own car, and I live a couple of states away safely from my past life. Even though I'm states away and it's been three years now, let's not meet. So I'm going to tell you the story of my brief encounter with a man called Happy. Even though this happened around nine years ago, sometimes he still crosses my mind, especially on gloomy overcast days in LA, just like the day I met Happy. 2013, I'm working at a cannabis dispensary in Venice Beach, a block from the boardwalk. A good 35% of our patrons were unhoused people. Occasionally someone experiencing severe psychosis would try to come in, but if they were screaming or unintelligible, security would not let them in. If they had and presented the holy trinity of medical papers, ID, and cash, they were good to go. We had a compassion program where we'd bag up grams of shake left over from bottoms of jars and give them completely free one per person per day, to anyone who asked. Word about this spread quickly on the boardwalk. And generally, these people would be the nicest, most polite and considerate customers, even if they did smell a bit stinky and their money got pulled out of a sweaty sock. No one working there would bat an eye if someone came in smelling like they'd slept on the beach for a week next to a bottle of vodka, as long as they were just calmly coming to buy their weed and be on their way like any other customer. It's a foggy, chilly day around the holidays between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Someone called out, so I was the only person in the back bud-tending. There was another employee at reception and the security guard at the front door, but I'm alone in the back room. There are cameras, but no one is actively watching them. This guy walks in after being checked in at the front. He's the only customer at the moment, and I swear the whole room gets colder as he walks in. He's wearing a very worn-in, deeply faded, wrinkled, conformed-to-his-body, floral-length leather duster jacket and a similarly beaten-up, wide-brimmed leather cowboy hat. It looked like he'd lived and slept in these same clothes for years. We did not allow hats, hoods, or sunglasses in the store, so I'm surprised the security didn't make him take off his hat. This man is at least 6'5 and built like a boulder. Not obese kind of large, but pick you up and toss you like a ragdoll large. The stench that comes with him is unlike anything I've ever smelt before or since. I mean, it was beyond B.O., beyond pisser shit. 
It smelled like actual death, as if he had raw, rotting carcasses tucked under his thick, long leather coat. I thought I had been hardened by plenty of nasty body stank before, but this was absolutely revolting for beyond anyone who hadn't showered lately or pissed their pants. I'm trying not to inhale very deeply, and I say, Hi, sir. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Would you mind taking off your hat? It's just store policy. Big customer service smile. What are you looking for today? He grunts deeply. He's walking very slow, shuffling and dragging his feet. His voice sounds like he gargles with gravel, rough and wet, raw and angry. I don't take off my hat. At this point, I'm not trying to argue with this man about his hat either. Let's get him in and out. I glance down and see he's not wearing shoes. The bit I can see from under his coat, one of his ankles is massively purple-black and swollen, like melon-sized. The bottoms of both of his feet are bloody and torn up, and I realize he's leaving a slight trail of blood as he drags his ragged feet across the concrete floor of the shop. My first thought is, how and why the fuck did security let this guy in? Second is, this guy is obviously seriously injured, and that's concerning as a human being. I'm making sure to keep the display shelf between me and this guy, but that's only about a foot of space, like a bar. He gets to me, and the stench gets stronger. I meekly but sincerely ask, Are you alright, sir? His eyes flare at me. What do you care? And I'm like, well, I tried. Not my chair, not my problem, not my monkeys, not my circus. Great, what can I get for you? He pulls up one of his sleeves to expose his forearm, and it's covered in large, round burns like from a cigar. Some old, healed, some fresh, pussy, and infected. It's not track marks, it's burns. He also has a jagged, homemade-looking stick-and-poke tattoo of a smiley face, a crooked circle, two lines for eyes, and a scabbed-up curve of a smile. He points at this tattoo. Happy. My name is Happy. The rotting stink was so strong, and I needed to breathe little gasps, the least possible. I walked here. I walked all the way here from Pasadena. I'm like, wow, sir, that's a very long walk. Anyway, what are you looking for today? Just for you. His eyes are dark and menacing. He is smeared with the layer of grime, like he lives in the woods dirty. He doesn't look like the average crust punk or disabled veteran you generally see living on the beach. It was hard to guess his age, but he wasn't that old or young, somewhere between 30 to 50. He literally looked like he dragged himself from his log cabin, like what would happen if you entangled some quantum mechanic poorly and mixed Ed Gein with an 1800s homesteader then transported him to the 2013 Venice Beach. I, of course, have never seen this man before. Once was more than enough to make him unforgettable. He keeps staring at me, and I move as far back as I can to the wall, hopefully out of his grasp if he lunged. I would need to walk out from behind the case and around him to get to the security guard. I'm weighing my options. I decide to grab a bunch of compassion grams and then weigh out an eighth and mark it down that I'd paid for it later. And he's still just like leering at me, wheezing heavy, stinking breaths. We actually have a special today, only for people who walked more than 10 miles to get here. This is all for you on the house. Thanks so much for stopping by. He accepts the bag, but continues to just stand there and stare at me. Thank you, Happy. It worked. He grunts a guttural noise that is not a word and slowly turns to shuffle back towards the door. At the door, he turns back towards me and says, I'll see you later. He finally walks out after leaving plenty of his residual stench of death behind. Thank any and all of the gods, I did not see Happy later or ever again. When I asked security why the fuck did they let him in, he said that when he had noticed his bloody feet and said, hey, hey bro, you all good? That looks like it hurts. 
Happy had stepped up in his face and threatened to choke you out, stupid N-word. And since it was just him and the other 22-year-old, 130-pound girls, he wasn't going to die tonight and figured hopefully Happy could just get his stuff and leave. He was watching the cameras in the back, ready to call the police and owners if anything got weird. Apparently, we had different definitions of weird, but I understood his reaction, and ultimately, we're all fine. Just spooked and creeped out, and now needing to clean blood off the floor with bleaching gloves, and texting our boss that he owed us free weed about it. He agreed, and we all lived happily ever after. This is my brother's girlfriend's story. She doesn't have a Reddit, but I told her about this subreddit and she wanted to share her story because it's creepy, but also to learn from. I go to school in a big city that is one of the least safe cities in the US. I chose this school for nursing and definitely not for the location. I live in a row house, that's what we call it, off campus with four other girls cheaper and nicer than dorms, or so we thought. I guess you get what you pay for. We are all girls and sophomores in college, and as you would guess, we go out and drink, come back and do things we don't remember. We had just started our rent in August. Three floors plus a basement, which was padlocked by the owners. Understandable. We would have definitely had parties down there to avoid immediate cleanup. The house was great, Amazing location to the school and work. I'm a CNA who works odd hours. Important for later. It was not expensive and was in good condition. I had never lived with that many people before. Just one roommate. So before, we definitely knew if one of us had misplaced or changed something. I started to notice my snacks were either half gone or completely gone. I was getting annoyed, but a house of many people is too much work to go figure out who ate what, so I ignored it. Slowly, as girls do, we started making comments about someone eating our food, but passive-aggressively. We all just let it go, because who wants a whole house fight? I work until about 11 in the NICU, get home at about 11.30 mostly on the weekends. I started to notice pans left out or snack wrappers around. I thought it was odd because none of my roommates had done that before, but just thought, oh, they probably drank a bottle of wine, then went to bed and forgot about all of this. Again, my roommates started making comments. This time we started to ask because it was getting annoying. I mean, all of our food being gone and things being left. I knew it was one of them, but who wants to admit they ate someone else's snacks in college? I mean, snacks are a high commodity. We chalked it up to the girl who always smokes and eats her waiting food. She swore it wasn't her. This went on for about two months. It got more obvious someone was clearly taking everyone's food. Definitely the girl that always smokes. I mean, I see her eat her whole snack pantry in a night. I wish it was her. One night at work, I was about to get off, but a situation happened that I didn't end up leaving until 12.30. I took the bus home. I carried pepper spray, taser, and pocket knife. Don't worry. I got home and was about to collapse. I wanted to go to bed ASAP. I walked in the front door, and the stairs are directly in front of you. You can also see down the side into the kitchen. I walked in and saw someone in the kitchen, but was way too tired to say hi, thinking it could end in like a 30-minute conversation about nothing, so I went straight upstairs. When I got to the second floor, I noticed all my roommates' doors were closed, which always means they are either in their room for the night or asleep. I got a weird feeling, just something that made it click. They were all asleep, right? I texted our house group chat asking if anyone was in the kitchen. I mean, I felt stupid for even asking, Two responded no, and they said the other two had been asleep. I knew it wasn't any of my roommates down there at that moment, and I dialed 911, but didn't press call. I crept into my roommate's room across the hall. Thankfully, or 
maybe not, thankfully, she didn't have her door locked. I whispered, telling her, I think someone's in the house. She gave me the widest eyes ever and almost looked like she was going to cry. She didn't suspect anything like I had, but for reference, a very bad area, as in there was a shooting in the house two doors down only weeks earlier by an intruder. She mouthed to make the call. The whole time, we were dead silent. We didn't hear really anything at all. I was starting to think I was seeing things after such a long day at work and was regretting that I dialed, thinking I'm going to look like an idiot when they show up and I was just overtired and dreaming. We explain what's going on and they said they will send someone ASAP. And that actually does mean right away since it's a big and dangerous city. The police showed up and I didn't even want to go downstairs, but the operator confirmed it was them, so I did. But the whole time I could swear the operator could hear my heart beating. The police came in and look around. I'm thinking, oh God, it looks so dumb. They ask if there are any other floors, and we tell them technically the basement, but it's padlocked, so really no. They checked the basement just in case, and, well, yeah, they were right. A man had been living in the padlocked basement. The lock was pulled off the hinges and just kind of propped against the wall. We never looked at it, though. We rarely went out back. The guy had taken a comforter of one of my roommates out of the hall closet, had a mattress from God knows where, and his clothes? Well, he was the one moving and eating all of our stuff. He would come out in the middle of the night and do it. He started getting more comfortable. I don't know if he was drugged out and forgot to clean up his tracks, or if he didn't really care. Me and my roommates have pretty consistent schedules during the week probably letting him think that any time after about 12 was good to come out. We never slept with our individual doors locked, and that's what freaks me out the most. He had access to any one of us at any moment, and we had no idea. When he was getting arrested, I was the only one to go down and look. I don't know why I did, and I wish I hadn't. I took a picture in the process of him being arrested to show my roommates who were too afraid to go down. This is him, which will be linked in the description. So yeah, let's never actually meet, dude. Edit. Some questions about all the stuff he had down there. The clothes were some unexplainable, and the nice button-down shirts you see are shirts from two of my roommates' boyfriends that complained about losing them. The basement was also used as an extra storage for the owners long ago, so that's why there's a pull-up bar and random bigger things. Not everyone has to believe it, but it did happen to me, and it was very scary. This is an occurrence that takes me pretty far from the setting of most of my other encounters and finds me in good old Ohio. You see, I was hiatus from my life in general at the time, debating a fresh start in a new corner of the country. I'd been in Ohio before, though only for a short time, and my memories of it were quite fond. I decided to go back there and see if I still felt the same way about it. I was not employed at the time, but I had a substantial source of income due to the fact that I do tattoo work. It was my tattoo work that allowed to rent an extended stay motel for the time being and was unfortunately also the reason that this encounter came to pass. I'm going to cover this now to save questions later. I'm not a licensed tattoo artist, though that is soon to be changing and was not licensed at this time in the state. I am, however, a good artist with excellent sanitation practices as two people in my life are professional licensed artists and taught me everything I know. Back to the story. I got a text from somebody who had seen a post about my work. She said her name was Kimberly and she was interested in getting something done. We talked a bit and compared schedules, all that fun stuff. We were at odds with our timing and decided that I would meet her at her job to further discuss it and she could see my portfolio. Kimberly worked at a small deli not too far from my motel, and I headed over there at the appointed time. It seemed as if it was empty, with only one car in the lot other than mine. 
I grabbed my equipment and went inside and the little bell dinged and a little Asian man came out to the counter and asked how he could help me. I said that I was looking for Kimberly and explained that I had business with her. He said, sure, hold on, and came out into the lobby area of the deli. Then he went over to the front door, pulled out his keys, and locked it. It was one of those doors that had no other locking mechanism, only the key. I couldn't have left without the key. It was needed both ways. Then he turned to me and he told me that he was Kimberly and told me to sit down. I reached into my pocket for my phone and realized that I had left it in my car. Then I went to the door and tried it anyway, and of course it wouldn't open. The whole time, Kimberly, staring at me with a smile, he told me again to sit down, so I did. I asked him why he'd locked me in, and he said it was for our safety. I gave him the benefit of the doubt. He looked harmless, and we were in a bad part of town. He started talking about the tattoo, asking questions. He wanted to know if I could do portrait work, and I explained that I could and that some of my portrait work was shown in the post he'd gotten my info from. He said he needed seven faces and wanted it to be a whole sleeve. This was beyond the scope of anything we discussed, and I told him it could be done, but it would take a while and would have to be more than one session. This seemed to make him uncomfortable. He asked how long, and I said I didn't know. It was hard to estimate portrait work as each picture presents its own unique challenges. He asked how many sessions it would take, and I said ideally one for each face, but I might be able to do two at a time. Then I asked him who the people were, if they were family. He didn't answer me right away, just got this spacey look in his eyes and seemed to stare through me. After a while, he did start talking. The first one he wanted, he said, was a woman he'd known in high school. I found it strange the way he said it. Like, you don't just get casual acquaintances' portraits tattooed on you. You just don't. So I asked why he wanted her tattooed on him, and he told me that it was because she had been his first kill. I, I just sat there in disbelief. I didn't even know what to say. He started talking again after a few minutes. He said that all of the people he wanted portraits of were people that he'd killed. He also said that he'd killed more than that, many more, but that these were his favorite ones. I didn't know whether or not to believe him, but given the situation I was in, I didn't really want to find out. I asked him why I should tattoo these people on him, when he'd probably just kill me afterwards too, and he looked legitimately surprised and told me he'd never even considered it odd, especially knowing that I knew where he worked. He went on to tell me some really horrific things about what he'd done, things I won't even repeat here. He gave me names and locations and was going to give me pictures of his victims for the tattoos. He said that before long he would get caught and he wanted these tats on his arms so that he'd never forget their faces while he was in prison. I don't think that this man felt that I could be of any kind of threat to him. He was so casual about everything. It wasn't even really defensive in the least. But I grew up in the hood and had done several years in prison and knew how to handle myself. I didn't really even need to know how, as it turned out, because I stood up and hit him once he fell down, seeming to be unconscious. I took the key from him and unlocked the door and ran to my car and left in a hurry. I called the police to report everything as I drove, and this is where it gets really scary, in my opinion. They dispatched officers to his deli and sent one to my motel room so I could file a report about everything. The officer that showed up looked puzzled when I told him where it had happened and asked if I was sure. I said I was and he told me that that deli had been closed for a few weeks now because the owner had disappeared. The owner's family apparently believed that the owner had gone to Hawaii for whatever reason. I guess he told them that before he was thinking about it and he hadn't been in touch so they had reported him missing. I told him I was sure and that I had proof. I still had the keys to the place. The cop went pale, looking pretty disturbed, but wouldn't say anything more about it. I gave him the keys and he left. Later on, through means that I can't mention here, I found out a few things that were pretty disturbing to me. 
One of them was that the owner's family hadn't been able to access the deli at all because it was locked up, and they had told the police that the owner had been the only person with the keys. I never heard any more about it, but I did a little investigation of my own. I searched all of the names that he told me and got a few things from it. I can't be certain of these things as they were unrelated to what happened. I got hits on two of the names. The first was a prostitute with several arrests for prostitution. The arrests weren't in this area, but they hadn't been too far away either. The second was a similar story, but several drug charges and no prostitution, and like the other, she wasn't in the area but wasn't far off either. No hits for missing people under those names at all, but a prostitute might not have anyone who would report them missing. Same with the narcotics woman. That or the people who would possibly report her missing assumed she was on a using binge somewhere and neglected to report her missing. I found nothing at all about the rest that seemed to be related. I don't know what I believe about all of this, but I lean towards the possibility that this guy was dead serious. I mean, his demeanor, that vacant store of his, him locking the deli up, his behavior practically screamed that something was wrong. I left Ohio very shortly after this happened and went home, and I haven't been back there since. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of Blaming on the Aliens. I hope you guys got kind of chills thinking about this being you or your friend. And I know not all of the stories may have triggered that for you or whatever, but some of these, I just, I couldn't stop thinking about them. And I felt a little different reading these stories than I have on previous stories. Like I actually felt like, oh shit, like that is... Some so something that I would do. I would not think anything of a guy, an older guy buying me and my friends a round of shots, and then I'm everybody's best friend is shots are involved. You know what I mean? So I guess anyway, I'm just gonna stop spiraling in my head about these stories, but they kind of triggered me a little bit because I can relate very hard. I've never had that specifically happen to me, but I can so see it happening to me. Um, If you have had anything similar to that, if you've ever listened to Operation Fireball and have your own personal stories, um, definitely let me know. I would love to share them. I think it's really important for girls and women, especially to share their experiences, even if nothing happened. Like, even if they're like, ah, that's probably just a weird guy. You know what I'm saying? It takes one person sharing this kind of weird thing left a mark on me and I can't stop thinking about it to be like, this actually happened to me too. And to validate not only your personal experience, but also make a connection where it's like, oh shit, there's like actually something going on here or I'm not crazy. I'm not being a bitch for, you know, calling this guy a creeper for buying a shot. You know, in my opinion, if that had happened to me, I'd have been like, that was weird. I got a weird feeling, but I wouldn't have thought necessarily to write a post about it on reddit but it just goes to show like that is crazy to me your stories are all important it doesn't matter if it's not creepy and you think it's creepy like it's worth sharing so with that I would encourage you guys to I mean share your story on reddit but I would love also of course for you guys to send in your own personal creepy stories about these types of situations to my email, blamingonthealiens1 at gmail.com. If you want to write it, if you don't feel like writing it and are better spoken, you can send it to the voice message in the description below. And I would love to have it on the show. If you just want to share your story without it being on the show, I would also love to hear it and just know that other people have had similar experiences. Um, I am also on social media Blame It on the Aliens podcast on Instagram and Blame It on the Aliens pod on TikTok. So follow and share my post on your story. Spread the word. Spread the gospel. Not really. That's kind of sacrilege. But anywho, gonna stop now. And if you haven't already, of course, rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the show and you're enjoying it, definitely do so. It helps me out a ton and it helps grow the show, which I'm really trying to do. So I appreciate you all 
of you loyal listeners and the show is really taking off. So I also want to make an impact with my stories and not just read creepy content every week, but also have purpose behind some of them as well. So thanks again for listening and I will see you guys next week.